Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. So first I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Richard Fry. Welcome, Dr. Fry. Today is May 2nd, 2014, and we're going to be talking today about some of the exciting research and background on mitochondrial disease and dysfunction, autism, autism spectrum disorder, and the role of oxidative stress. Before we get started on the topic, Dr. Fry, I would like you to introduce yourself and give us a little bit of your background, and then I'll remind everyone where they can read along the slides as you talk today. So would you give us a little background about what you are, what you do? Sure. Great. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming and, and listening today. I hope it will be um, useful for uh, for people and help um, your children. Um, <clears throat> so I'm the uh, director of autism research and the director of the autism multi-specialty clinic here at Arkansas Children's Hospital. I've been here for a little over two years, about two and a half years, um, and the idea was to build a center that uh, can uniquely um, look at the biological underpinnings of autism and develop uh, treatments and treatment trials to try and um, improve the lives of children with autism. Um, when I started um, working in autism, it was um, um, kind of uh, a serendipitous type of experience in the sense that um, um, I um, uh, didn't I didn't exactly start out to uh, study autism. I was more interested in learning disabilities, but um, as I worked my clinical practice, more and more parents came to me um, with their children with autism and asked, uh, well, um, what's wrong with my child? Um, I know there's something um, that's underlying um, their uh, developmental problems, um, and um, nobody's telling me, nobody's figuring it out. So um, so I started um, kind of systematically looking at uh, different um, neurologic and metabolic disorders um, that were associated with autism <clears throat> and started to find out that uh, there's uh, quite a few, you know, including mitochondrial disorders, oxidative stress, rheumatoid deficiency, um, you know, subclinical um, seizures, um, all, all types of things, um, and um, that uh, when you actually look for these things, you can find it, and actually treating some of these things um, actually makes uh, children better. So um, uh, going along that um, route, um, I actually built a practice where I started specializing in autism because those were the parents that came to see me. And, um, and so now um, what I've... Uh, Son is trying to build a center where we can systematically uh, look for these disorders um, through um, developing biomarkers um, and, um, and then systematically look at treatments um, to help um, certain subgroups of children with autism and other neurodevelopmental disorders to um, improve their lives. So um, that's a little bit about me. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Clay. Welcome back for doing a teleconference for us again. Um, so the link is for the slides that will go along with this talk today is www.mitoaction.org backslash mito-action-2014. And uh, you can also find that by searching for this talk on the website and uh, seeing the link in the in the box on the page about autism, mites, and oxidative stress. 
So, Dr. Fry, uh, everyone has their slides ready, and we're ready to learn more about this topic. So, please jump in whenever you're ready. Sure. Um, so, um, um, I, I, it's, uh, the topic that I'm going to talk about today is a, a bit of a broad topic in the sense that it includes many different aspects um, of metabolic disorders and developmental disorders. Um, uh, uh, Christy has asked me to talk a little bit about the basis of autism, too, so we understand that. And so in the first couple of slides, I've, um, um, I have a few slides about autism. The second slide um, uh, shows a nice uh, diagram of how um, we um, think about autism, how it's broken up. And um, <clears throat> it's a bit of an old slide in the sense that it's pretty much based on DSM-4, which is now um, really the old um, diagnostic manual. Um, but since the, the DSM-5 is uh, really uh, somewhat controversial at this time, and most of our research is based on um, uh, DSM-4, I'd like to continue to talk about it. When we think of um, autism, we, we think of um, uh, different features and characteristics, and just um, to think about the umbrella that they're under, we have really the umbrella that's, uh, that the diagnosis is pervasive developmental disorders, and underneath the pervasive developmental disorders is the autism spectrum disorders, and the autism spectrum disorders contain three different disorders, that is autistic disorder, Asperger's syndrome, and pervasive dis developmental disorder not otherwise specified. And those are three kind of flavors of, of the same um, disorder, of the same spectrum. Um, the other disorders that are underneath the pervasive developmental disorders are Rett syndrome, which has a known uh, genetic mutation that causes it, and childhood disintegrative disorder, which is really a very much an autism-like disorder, but it's something that has a late onset and is associated uh, we know usually with some type of medical causes, usually some type of epileptic syndrome or mitochondrial or metabolic disorders. Uh, for the most part, the autism spectrum disorders need to start before three years of age. The symptoms need to start before three years of age to have that diagnosis. On um, slide uh, three, I'd like to uh, show this because it shows kind of the three areas um, of impairments that we see that define um, autism. And as there's social impairments, communication impairments, and repetitive behaviors or restricted interests. And um, uh, one thing that um, we uh, uh, have to think about when we talk about communication impairments is that uh, children with autism classically, when we talk about communication impairments, it's not just language impairments but the inability to communicate um, to another person in, in any way, both verbal and nonverbal. The um, <clears throat> diagnosis of autistic disorder, really, you have impairments in all three of these areas. If you go to slide four, um, you see that uh, these are kind of diagrams of what pervasive developmental disorder uh, would look like, and you can see in pervasive developmental disorder, you may not have all of the characteristics, that is, you may have social and communication impairments, but not um, restricted behaviors. Um, or it could be the other way around with um, 
with PDDNOS. You don't have to have all the characteristics of autistic disorder. Whereas Asperger's disorder, you um, um, really have uh, problems major, um, mostly with social impairments and with uh, restricted behaviors, um, repetitive behaviors and restricted interests. And the, at least the early onset communication impairments that we see in autistic disorder and PDDNOS aren't usually there in um, children with Asperger's disorder. Um, and some people, you know, describe um, children that become high-functioning autism as having Asperger's syndrome, and, and that's not really correct. They have high-functioning autism because they've um, developed out of um, um, having those symptoms from when they're young, whereas Asperger's disorder, um, really you don't have um, the least communication and language impairments um, when um, you're young. Um, but now, if you're following the uh, evolution of the DSM, we find that the DSM-5 uh, has now combined um, social impairments and communication impairments because it's believed that these are so intertwined it's very difficult um, to diagnose them separately and we have a social communication impairment as a category and then we have the repetitive behaviors and it ends up now that if you don't have repetitive behaviors and restricted interests and only have social and communication problems, you don't qualify for really the diagnosis of autism anymore and really you have a social communication disorder. Um, so um, it, in some ways it makes it somewhat um, confusing. On slide five we have a little bit of information of um, um, of different characteristics, the nature of onset of autistic disorder and pervasive development disorder. It's by definition before 36 months. Um, we see different patterns of uh, the development of, um, of these disorders. Uh, sometimes um, about a third of uh, children, um, it's said that uh, these symptoms occur from very early on. Um, some children have a pattern where they seem to be developing fine for a while and then they seem to plateau in their development. And then there's another segment, which is also about a third, where there's um, clear normal development and suddenly there's this regression um, and they lose all their skills. And sometimes these regressions have um, different characteristics. Some children um, seem to regress very rapidly and others seem to regress very slowly. Um, so there's different patterns of regression. Regression after 36 months, um, as I had mentioned uh, before, is really considered childhood disintegrative disorder. And then you have Asperger's syndrome. Um, there's no really, no age criteria for diagnosis and it's not really um, obvious many times until later childhood because language development is normal and you don't have that striking language um, impairment that you see in, in both autistic disorder and pervasive development disorder. So um, there's been some studies that, um, that really look at uh, the behaviors um, of uh, children in early life who later develop autism. And to understand autism um, 
it's nice to um, uh, think about these um, symptoms um, and um, and see how they differentiate um, children who seem to have autistic characteristics that may not be that obvious from those that uh, uh, that are developing normally. And um, when studies have gone back to look at uh, children who later developed autism, they found that there's certain characteristics that seem to uh, be missing early on, and uh, some of those things are responding to their name. Many children are, uh, that later develop autism don't respond to their name. They don't look at other people or at least show a preference for looking at other people. Um, they don't show um, something called joint attention, which I'll talk about in a second. They don't sh um, show others objects that they're interested in for shared enjoyment. They have decreased social interactions with games like peekaboo um, that um, many children seem to develop um, uh, a fondness for. Um, and they don't um, look at others and make good eye contact um, for communication. And that's something that's a very characteristic um, uh, with eye contact. Um, some people think that autism is very much um, uh, characterized by just poor eye contact. And um, and that's not really the whole case because then you'd say that shy people have autism, but they don't. Um, a lot of times they, they're just shy and they don't like to look in other people's eyes because they're shy. Um, but what differentiates somebody that's shy from somebody that has autism is that um, is that uh, somebody that's just shy will will look at other people and they will use their gaze to show um, what they're interested in, um, although it might be um, a uh, a quick gaze and, and when they get engaged with somebody they may look away, but they use their eye contact to show that they're interested initially um, and to begin and end interactions. So um, it may seem like it's a subtle difference, but it's an important difference. Um, on slide seven, um, I have a slide about pointing. And, and pointing is just so important in, um, in autism. And that's something that we see that um, children with autism don't develop many times. Um, and I think we kind of underappreciate pointing early on. And pointing um, early in life, um, when it usually starts about eight to ten months, is a very, very important um, nonverbal communication tool. Um, and um, and at about a year old, it's uh, really the majority of uh, gestures of, of a child. And there's different types of pointing. Um, there's uh, there's proto-imperative and proto-declarative. And, um, and they have a developmental course. That is, the first type of pointing really is used to communicate just wants um, um, and needs. Um, whereas the uh, proto-declarative pointing is something that's more evolved and is really more of a uh, social gesture that isn't just for somebody to get their um, needs fulfilled, but is a pointing that is used to show people they are interested in something and that the other person should be interested in something so they can share the enjoyment of what they're interested in. And um, um, 
there's other gestures which I have on slide eight, which are, are very important in the social development of young children that are um, deficient in many children with autism. And some of those things um, uh, that you kind of um, uh, don't realize until in, in, in so you think about it um, are things like showing and giving. That is, um, a, uh, a child, if they're interested in something um, and they want to share that with you, they will show you something. They'll come up to you and they'll extend their arms holding the object and, and place it in front of you so you can understand that they are interested in it. And then more advanced from that is giving, when a, a child will um, actually take an object and they'll put, it, they'll put that in somebody else's um, hand because they're interested in it and they want to share it with somebody else. And those are really some of the very kind of subtle um, social um, um, behaviors that, uh, that, are, um, that are deficient in, in, in many children with autism that we see that develop in uh, normal children. So, um, so that's all I'm going to say about um, autism itself. Um, um, it's, uh, you know, it's very complicated. Um, and I'm not going to get into all of the, um, the subtleties of it, but we can talk about it later if people have questions. So, of course, the big um, question is, what is the cause of autism? And so, um, on slide 10, I have listed um, the, uh, the prevalence of certain genetic abnormalities. And it's really, you know, um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of research, a lot of... Um, uh, um, a lot of effort put into finding the uh, genetic disorders that are associated with autism and uh, suggesting that autism is a uh, genetic disorder. But when we uh, really look at um, uh, genetic disorders, um, um, they don't make up um, the majority of children with autism. So these are estimates of the different types of genetic abnormalities uh, cytogenetic abnormalities, that is, chromosome, chromosomal, large chromosomal problems, fragile X, um, Rett syndrome, which pretty much only affects females, and uh, chromosomal microarray abnormalities, or copy number variations. And if you add all of these up, which are really the major genetic problems that you see in children with autism, uh, you find out that it adds up to about 21%. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a good number. It's about a fifth of children with autism, but it also leaves 79% um, of children with autism without an identified genetic diagnosis or really an, an etiology of uh, or reason why they have their autism. And what's interesting here is that uh, these numbers are from a paper um, by Dr. Uh, Schaefer and, and Mendelssohn, which was in Genetics and Medicine in 2008, but it's actually been revised and was published last year and updated in uh, 2013. Um, and even with all the advances in genetic technology, these numbers really haven't changed much. So the next slide, slide um, 11, um, I have just listed all the different um, inherited metabolic disorders. So there's many metabolic disorders, and metabolic disorders 
um, should be differentiated between inherited metabolic disorders, which most people assume that metabolic disorders are when they diagnose them, uh, versus um, other types of metabolic disorders. Um, and um, so there's been many different metabol inherited metabolic disorders that have been described in autism. Um, and, um, and, and these are usually associated with gene defects. But really, um, some of these very defined uh, metabolic disorders are only even reported in case studies, and, and they're not very um, widespread in children with autism. Um, if you look at the cases of mitochondrial disease, that is a strictly a diagnosed mitochondrial disease, um, you find that only 25% of those cases um, have been linked to a uh, genetic problem. And so that 75% of the case reports of mitochondrial disease do not have a specific genetic cause that has been found. Um, so um, in slide 12, I have listed um, some of the non-inherited um, metabolic conditions that we see in autism. And, um, and it's not to say that there's no genetic component to these conditions, but they, they are not purely um, due to a genetic mutation. Um, and they come, uh, there, there's, there's actually many, the three, three that um, are really major are mitochondrial disorders, uh, disorders of redox metabolism or oxidative stress, and abnormalities in uh, the folate metabolism. Um, and um, what's, uh, what's important here is that um, not only have these been described, but um, they're very much linked um, and interact with each other. And, um, um, and you can see um, many of these same disorders within the same individual. Um, and what we'll talk about in a little bit is uh, how redox abnormalities, and is abnormalities in oxidative stress, can um, cause problems in uh, mitochondrial function. And mitochondrial disorders can um, cause abnormalities in redox metabolism. And the same thing with folate abnormalities. Poor folate abnormalities can cause uh, uh, problems with uh, redox metabolism and mitochondrial problems, and those can then uh, result in abnormalities in folate metabolism. And the, the big one that we're um, working with is cerebral folate um, deficiency and what we call insufficiency. Um, that is insufficient folate for the uh, metabolic pathways to work in the brain. Um, and um, and that, that's really a very important area as there's many ways um, to uh, uh, block folate from getting into the brain um, as the transporter that brings folate into the brain can be blocked by uh, folate autoantibodies. Um, but um, also uh, mitochondrial disease and dysfunction can result in that transporter not working all that well. What's very interesting is when you look at these um, kind of non-metabolic, uh, I'm sorry, non-inherited uh, metabolic conditions such as redox metabolism, folate abnormalities, mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, if you look at reports um, where they where in the, people have looked for um, these disorders in genetic syndromes, like Rett syndrome and Down syndrome, 
um, and um, uh, and other pure genetic conditions, we find that um, that um, even though these metabolic abnormalities aren't classically associated with them, um, we find these um, disorders associated with them. Um, so, in, for example, in Rett syndrome, although we know the gene that causes Rett syndrome, um, we can find um, many uh, reports of mitochondrial um, dysfunction um, in Rett syndrome, and we know that cerebral folate deficiency is um, highly uh, connected with Rett syndrome also. So, just because you have a genetic disorder or well-defined genetic disorder does not mean that some of these other metabolic problems aren't occurring also. So, on the next slide, uh, slide 13, um, is just a uh, paper that I um, uh, published with Dr. Rosignol, where we looked at the, the trends in some of these um, um, kind of non-traditional areas of um, um, of autism, that is, you know, many of the traditional areas are genetics and uh, neuroimaging, theory of mind, um, stress as uh, causes of autism. And you can see that the, those um, really started um, to um, be researched uh, early on in the, in the um, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, whereas some of these more um, recent areas, such as uh, mitochondrial dysfunction, oxidative stress, um, uh, the role of toxicants from the environment, immune dysfunction, really started um, more recently within the, the past uh, 10 or 20 years and has slowly caught on but uh, appears to be um, gaining um, more and more recognition. So um, as we learn more, I, th I think we will learn more about the causes of autism. Um, <clears throat> slide 14 is a, is a nice paper, um, which was a uh, twin twin study uh, of um, uh, where uh, factors, um, genetic, both genetic and environmental factors, could be pulled out to see how they contribute to the development of autism. And in this twin study, they um, showed that actually um, genetic heritability accounted um, less, that is only 38% um, of the variance of uh, the risk of developing autism versus environmental component was much higher at 58%, uh, suggesting that they're probably both very important, both environment and genetics, but you really have to look at both sides of the coin and you can't really um, think about one without the other. So. Here on slide 15, I have a little summary um, just to um, summarize our new understanding of autism. Um, one thing that's important to understand is that at this point, autism is defined by a collection of symptoms, um, not any specific medical condition or any blood test can diagnose autism. Autism is diagnosed by symptoms. Um, and what we're learning is that these symptoms that uh, define autism um, are associated with, uh, with different types of underlying medical disorders. And exactly how these medical disorders are related is really not clear. We're also finding that autism is really a most multisystemic disorder. Um, that is that um, it is not caused just by abnormalities in the brain, but we find abnormalities in other parts of the body. 
um, most uh, you know prominently the the um, the gut and the immune system. Um, and it's most probable that this rise in autism that we see is probably an interaction between genetics and the environment, um, and not one or the other. So um, now we'll um, talk about uh, the mitochondria and autism on slide 16 now. So slide 17 is a little um, introduction to mitochondrial disease. Um, it's a relatively new field um, in medicine. Really the first well-defined mitochondrial diseases were only described in 1988 um, in two papers that came out um, in uh, the top tier journals the same year. One describing Lever's hereditary optic neuropathy and the other one describing a mitochondrial myopathy. Um, so in uh, in medicine, um, it's really relatively new and and um, not a lot is understood about it and not a lot is taught about it in, uh, in medical school. Um, it's usually defined by um, symptoms um, in uh, many different organ tissues, although the organs or the parts of the body that are affected um, can vary. Um, depending on uh, the disease manifestations, and that's what makes it very hard to diagnose. Usually the tissues of the body that are um, affected are the high energy dependent tissues, so the ones that really need a lot of energy since the mitochondria, um, it's one of its main, um, uh, one of its uh, main roles is to make energy. And so when we think about what parts of the body um, really need lots of energy um, that those include, the top on the list include um, the brain, so you see neurologic disease, the gut, so you see gastrointestinal disease, and the immune system, so you see immune dysfunction. And uh, so uh, th these are some of the things we keep seeing over and over again in uh, some children with autism, so um, it really seems like um, this uh, can fall into the, the picture to explain why many children with autism in their bodies are not working. And the mitochondria we think of as the powerhouse of the cell of making energy, but it also has other roles. It's important in um, the regulation of oxygen radicals and oxidative stress. And it's also uh, very important in regulating something called apoptosis or programmed cell death or telling the cell when it's time to give up because um, it can no longer survive. So that's very important when we think about mitochondria and uh, failure of the mitochondria when it's not working. So slide 18 um, is a diagram that shows a picture of a cell. Um, and in the cell, um, we can see it has many different parts. And one of the parts inside the cell is the mitochondria. There's many mitochondria in every cell, and it depends on how much energy the cell needs. So skin cells that don't need that much energy may have hundreds of mitochondria, whereas muscle cells that need lots and lots of um, energy may have tens of thousands of mitochondria. And the mitochondria itself um, is a very complicated um, um, structure. It has a, um, 
It has uh, two membranes that uh, define it. It has an outer membrane and then it has an inner membrane that's folded. And those folds called Christi are very, very important because that's where the energy is made in those little folds. Um, and slide 19, I have some of the major um, pathways, metabolic pathways, that we see in the mitochondria. And um, uh, I won't go into this in detail, but uh, suffice to say, what we see is that going into the mitochondria is uh, glucose um, um, on one end, so um, th and that's your carbohydrate fuels. And then um, next to it are um, some abbreviations for short-chain fatty acids, medium-chain fatty acids, and long-chain fatty acids. Long-chain fatty acids need carnitine. And those are the fats that go into the mitochondria to um, be made into energy. And um, these uh, uh, molecules go into the uh, mitochondria. And through some complicated processes, what ends up happening is you make something called ATP. And ATP is really energy currency of the cell. So um, these uh, carbohydrates and fats go into the mitochondria. They go through um, the TCA cycle. The TCA cycle sends things called electron carriers in the form of NADH and FADH2 to the electron transport chain which are these complexes that are numbered at the top, one through five. And through this electron transport chain, we convert those electron carriers into energy and store it into ATP, which the cell can use. So one of the reasons I put this diagram up there is that um, it helps you see where um, some of the... Um, uh, the um, molecules um, and metabolites that we measure um, to look for mitochondrial dysfunction are. And as we can see down on the bottom where glucose is going in, we have pyruvate, lactate, alanine. Um, and so we can see that pyruvate is one of the major ways that carbohydrates are brought into the mitochondria. So if mitochondria isn't working, then pyruvate isn't, is going to get um, backed up and it will build up and it will turn into lactate and it will turn into alanine. And so these become some of the major markers that the mitochondria isn't working because the system gets backed up and these uh, metabolites um, build up. The other thing... Um, the other things that uh, can build up are certain organic acids, which are part of the TCA cycle. So when we look for organic acids and urine organic acid tests, many of the organic acids that we're looking at are those metabolites within the TCA cycle, which build up because the TCA cycle is not operating efficiently. Um, and the next slide, slide 20, is just a, a slide that brings home the point that uh, many parts of the mitochondria, the respiratory uh, chain complexes, um, have um, uh, are, are made from um, both um, 
um, genes that are located in the nucleus, so that in the nucleus of the cell, that's the mDNA column, and in the mitochondria. So the mitochondria has its own DNA. And this makes it complicated when we um, look for uh, genetic disorders that are associated with mitochondria, because we have to set, we have to test both sets of, um, of uh, genes to look for abnormalities. So slide 21 is uh, table one from our um, paper, our systematic review and meta-analysis, um, looking for evidence of mitochondrial disease in autism. And this uh, paper was a review, so it looked at all papers that have been published which um, described um, um, an association or a lack of association between mitochondrial disease and autism. And in this table, we looked at studies that examine the prevalence of abnormal biomarkers, such as elevated lactate or elevated pyruvate, elevated alanine or elevated lactate to pyruvate ratio, low carnitine, or other uh, biomarkers. And uh, what we found um, is that, um, that overall, the six studies that looked at the prevalence of elevated lactate um, in children with autism, um, overall, there the prevalence, um, if you average out all those studies, is about 31%. So this suggests that about 31% of children with um, autism may have an elevated lactate, 13% for elevated pyruvate, 27% uh, for elevated um, uh, lactate-pyruvate ratio. Um, for low carnitine, carnitine becomes low when the mitochondria isn't working because um, it's, uh, it's used up trying to get rid of um, toxic metabolites from mitochondrial dysfunction. And so um, there's only one study that looked at uh, uh, carnitine but showed that up to 90% of children with autism may have low carnitine. So um, um, from that uh, review, it seemed like there was a, a lot of um, uh, children who have autism who have at least biomarkers um, of mitochondrial um, dysfunction. However, there's three studies that looked at um, the prevalence of mitochondrial disease with a very, using a very strict criteria for mitochondrial disease. And overall, those three studies, when you average them out, um, put the prevalence of mitochondrial disease in autism of only about 5%, which is a little bit different than the prevalence of elevation of these abnormal biomarkers. And so this is um, somewhat of, of a controversial area. And one of the reasons is that uh, the way that mitochondrial disease is defined can be very narrow. Um, and um, and can only look for specific mitochondrial disorders that we know about. And it may be that there's other mitochondrial disorders um, that uh, that are not defined by the specific criteria that they used, um, um, which uh, <coughs> um, 
suggesting that there may be a wider number of children with uh, uh, mitochondrial disease that hasn't that was not picked up by those studies. Um, and uh, slide 22 is also from our uh, our review, and uh, in this um, part of the study, what we did is we um, looked at studies that looked for um, abnormalities in these biomarkers, again, lactate, pyruvate, carnitine, and so on, um, but actually measured numbers. That is, they didn't just say what the percentage of abnormalities were, because it may be that um, that uh, if they're using a set of norms to define abnormalities, it may be different in one place than the other, so they could use the um, inappropriate uh, normative values and erroneously say that there is elevations. So um, what some, some studies did is that they used simultaneous controls um, to uh, um, make sure that they um, that everything was done exactly the same in the two sets of children. And when we look at those studies, we do see that there's uh, significant um, elevations um, in um, lactate, pyruvate, and depression and quarantine um, that, uh, that, um, uh, that are found in studies even when uh, controls, um, strict controls are used. Um, slide uh, 23 is a study uh, um, I published um, a while back where we reviewed um, uh, 133 uh, consecutive patients that came to my clinic and were um, uh, screened for mitochondrial disorders. Um, and the bottom line, if we go to um, slide 24, is uh, that um, that the, the prevalence of these increases in um, lactate um, and, um, and other abnormalities like the alanine slicing ratio um, were found to be um, increased um, even when um, we made sure that we repeated these tests a number of times um, to make sure that they were consistent. That is, sometimes, uh, especially lactates, can be erroneously elevated um, uh, uh, because they're very sensitive to a number of different factors. Um, so what we did is we asked, well, um, if it's abnormal once, we don't want to just um, uh, take that for fa uh, at face value. We actually want to repeat it. And what we found is that when you try and repeat these values, that uh, many times um, they don't um, repeat, but many times they do. Um, so um, it suggests that uh, that probably if a test is abnormal, it should be repeated to verify it. But when you look at the children, even after these values have been repeated, um, there are many children that consistently have elevations in these biomarkers for mitochondrial disease. Um, Slide um, 25, um, let's see, I think that's the same as one of the previous slides, so we'll skip that. So one of the other areas um, that's really important is uh, um, oxidative stress in autism. So abnormalities in what we call redox metabolism and signs of oxidative stress are um, seen in um, 
children with um, autism um, in uh, a good percentage, and there's good evidence for this. Um, so what is oxidative stress? So uh, slide 27 is a nice summary. And so oxidative stress um, is, uh, is the, um, um, or uh, oxidative stress comes from the, the um, creation of reactive species, both oxygen and nitrogen species. And what that means is that um, these uh, molecules um, are somewhat unstable and they can react with other molecules, thereby damaging them. Um, what causes this? Well, there's many different causes. Um, the body itself um, creates um, uh, free radicals um, through uh, the mitochondria. The way the mitochondria operates, it creates free radicals that need to be controlled. But there's other systems in the body that create these free radicals. And because of that, we have our antioxidant defenses, which are very, very important. The other place we uh, can get um, um, these reactive species from is from the environment. Um, and um, that's uh, uh, from ultraviolet light and radiation, um, environmental toxins um, also um, cause these free radicals to um, to be created. And they're not all bad. We need uh, what we call a homeostasis, uh, a, um, a balance between having some but not having too many. And when we have um, the right amount, our body grows normally. If we have too much, um, we can see uh, damage to our body. Um, and um, it's believed that aging is uh, caused by um, too many free radicals. Um, and it's also true that if we have too little, if we have too many antioxidants, we have too little reactive oxygen species, um, there can be um, problems with growth um, and regulation of some of the body systems. On slide 28, there is a nice diagram of different um, factors that uh, can cause um, free radicals. And as you see, there's many environmental um, factors, um, also the mitochondria, and also inflammation. Inflammation can increase reactive oxygen species also. And uh, slide 29, we uh, can see that uh, this is a diagram of just the balance um, between um, reactive oxygen species and um, antioxidants um, and if we have the right amount we have a nice balance and we're in equilibrium whereas if we have too many reactive oxygen species we'll produce oxidative stress that is it's stressing our body the other way that um, we can get uh, oxidative stress is to have too little antioxidants and uh, that will also cause oxidative stress if our antioxidant system isn't working. And it ends up in, uh, in autism, there's actually evidence for both. That is, too many reactive oxygen species and, and um, our antioxidant defenses are not working as well as they should. Um, slide uh, 30 um, is um, 
somewhat of a little complicated diagram, so I apologize for it. But the bottom line of this is that um, the major um, antioxidant um, in our body is called glutathione, or GSH, which is kind of in the bottom middle. And it's a very, very important antioxidant molecule. Um, and you can see from the, um, the arrows that come from above that some of the precursors to make it require energy from the mitochondria. Um, so the mitochondria is very important in producing um, this antioxidant. The other thing that's important is that this antioxidant glutathione is very important for eliminating toxins from our body. So um, if we have an overload of toxins in our body, we will use up um, glutathione um, and therefore decrease our antioxidant defenses. Slide 31 is a, a diagram where we see this interaction between um, oxidative stress and the mitochondria, that is, um, if the mitochondria is under higher oxidative stress, it's not going to work as well. It won't produce as much um, ATP, which is that energy molecule that's needed. Um, when there's less ATP, we're not going to um, um, we're not going to be able to uh, support our antioxidant defenses, which is going to cause more oxidative stress, which is going to cause the mitochondria not to work as well. And we can see there can be a vicious cycle that's um, set up. So in uh, slide um, 32, um, this is another diagram of how this very important molecule, uh, glutathione, is made, uh, GSH. Um, and um, this is a diagram from Jill James, who's done lots of work in the area of um, oxidative stress and redox metabolism in um, autism. And um, what, we, uh, what we have here is a diagram that shows that um, there's several systems that are very much highly interconnected with um, redox metabolism. That is, that uh, some of the precursors make glutathione, that is cysteine, comes from homocysteine, which is produced by the methylation pathway. Methylation is very important for regulating enzyme function, gene function, and turning genes on and off. So indirectly, abnormalities in redox metabolism can affect the way that genes are regulated. Methylation um, is dependent on both B12 and uh, the folate pathway um, and the folate cycle. And uh, the folate cycle is, uh, is very important in regulating methylation. And if you have methylation pathways not working as well, folate pathways won't work as well either. And in this diagram, what I've done is I've colored the, um, the metabolites and the um, enzymes which have been repeatedly shown to be abnormal in autism. Um, I've called them red. So you can see there's quite a bit of red um, in the Scott diagram, suggesting that many of these pathways um, do not function properly in autism. 
slide um, 33 is uh, a study from Dr. James. And, and that study, this is just one of the many studies that her lab has done where they've compared um, um, cases and controls of children with autism and typically developing children and looked at the differences in um, redox metabolism. Um, and this, this is a very well done study where she used sibling pairs and showed that there was these um, striking abnormalities in um, redox metabolism. Um, and um, in uh, slide 34, this is a, a diagram actually by the Chowens, who've done a lot of good work on mitochondrial uh, disease and dysfunction and oxidative stress and autism. Um, and this is a nice diagram that shows you the many different pathways of um, increasing free radicals, increasing the production of free radicals, and, um, and uh, having high levels of oxidative stress. And you can see that um, you can either have decreased antioxidants, um, and uh, you can see in those boxes there's different antioxidant enzymes, there's glutathione, and other factors. And these are all factors that have been shown to be abnormal in children with autism. And on the other side, you're going to have increased pro-oxidant um, uh, so um, things both endogenous um, because of abnormal metabolic pathways and exogenous, that is environmental factors, can cause increased uh, pro-oxidant states. And when you have too many free radicals, you can cause mitochondrial damage, you can cause damage to lipids, proteins, DNA in the body. Um, and of course, genetic factors interact with these and predispose um, people to put them at risk for more damage. So um, <clears throat> um, that's some of the pathways of, um, of how um, uh, oxidative stress can, uh, can cause damage and where it comes from. Um, in um, uh, slide 35, um, um, that's from um, one of our studies where we looked at the um, differences in oxidative stress between um, children with autism that have mitochondrial disease and don't have mitochondrial disease. And um, <clears throat> very interestingly, what we found is that um, there was uh, slightly different reasons for children with mitochondrial disease um, of um, having abnormal oxidative stress. That is, that we found that um, children who had autism but no mitochondrial disease actually seemed to have um, problems with having too much um, oxidation, that is, uh, too many um, um, reactive um, 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 too 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 much um, um, pro too much let's say too much of a pro-oxidant state, whereas individuals with mitochondrial disease and autism seem to have oxidative stress more because they had problems making um, glutathione rather than having too many pro-oxidant factors. So it suggests there's there may be slightly different reasons for having. Um, redox abnormalities in the two groups. Um, and on the next slide, um, we 
uh, is a, a diagram where, where we actually show that development um, in these children with autism was related to oxidative stress differently depending on whether you had mitochondrial disease or you didn't have mitochondrial disease. So this uh, really suggested that um, to us that mitochondrial disease and um, oxidative stress in those children that had autism and mitochondrial disease really were very much um, connected, not just theoretically, but it is evidence that they, they very much were connected. So um, we, uh, we thought about this a while and uh, we said, well, you know, there's this evidence that uh, mitochondrial, there's mitochondrial disease and autism and a lot of it does not seem to be um, related to uh, strict um, uh, genetic uh, disorders, but uh, maybe uh, due to an interaction between genetics and the environment or due to environmental factors. How do we um, look at this to see if there's actually a type of mitochondrial disease that's different than kind of the run-of-the-mill mitochondrial disease that may be caused by um, a higher uh, pro-oxidant state. And so um, slide 37 um, is a segue to the next section of our, um, looking at acquired mitochondrial dysfunction in autism. And so um, what we did is um, we um, obtained an instrument on slide 38. You can see a picture of something called the seahorse. And the seahorse is a, um, a machine that uh, measures um, mitochondrial function um, in cells. Um, and the nice thing about this machine is you can take cells from um, um, people with autism, without autism, and you can manipulate, it, manipulate these cells by changing their environment to see um, what happens. Um, and this tells you how these cells react as far as their mitochondrial function to these different conditions. So we'll skip, and so um, on slide 39, I won't go over all of the um, details, but uh, suffice to say, the seahorse um, gives us this bioenergetic profile. It tells us both about um, mitochondrial function and also tells us about glycolysis, which is a non-mitochondrial energy source um, in the cell. We can look at slide 40. Slide 40 um, tells us about, just lists the different um, reagents we use to, um, to set up our experiments. Um, and slide 41, um, we um, uh, shows a, an example of the different measurements that we can um, get um, from the uh, seahorse. And what the seahorse does is it measures something called OCR or oxygen consumption. And for the most part, the major part of our cell that consumes oxygen is the mitochondria. And so what we can do is we can manipulate the cell and look at the change in oxygen consumption. So at first, we just measure how much the cell is consuming oxygen. And then <clears throat> we put in an agent that uh, shuts down the ability of the mitochondria to make ATP, which is that energy molecule. And so um, then we can find out by looking at how much oxygen consumption decreases about 
um, how much of the mitochondrial function is really dedicated to making ATP or energy. Um, <clears throat> and we can also tell how much is due to something called proton leak. And proton leak is um, another part of mitochondrial function which is used to regulate um, oxidative stress. So when there's too much oxidative stress in the cell, the, um, uh, the mitochondria has to use energy to control that through something called proton leak. And that's really a waste of energy. We can also measure something called maximal respiratory capacity, which tells us how, um, uh, what's the maximal ability of the mitochondria to produce any type of energy if it needs to. So if it's under stress condition, what's its maximal rate? Um, and then we measure also non-mitochondrial respiration, but there's other things that can um, uh, produce, uh, can use oxygen, so we know how much is really consumed by the mitochondria. But uh, one of the things that's really important you can see in this diagram is the difference between the basal respiration, that is how much, how much oxygen the mitochondria is using um, just in its regular state, and the maximal respiratory capacity, or how much it can, um, uh, how, how fast or how, how um, much it can work if it really needs to if it's under stress. And this is called the reserve capacity, or the reserve the mitochondria has to, um, to um, have um, some extra energy if it needs to. Um, and this number is really important because um, other um, researchers have shown that when this reserve capacity hits zero, um, it signals the mitochondria that, uh, that it's no longer uh, a viable part of the cell and uh, signals um, apoptosis, that is programmed cell death. It says that uh, really it's futile to uh, keep on working because we have to work more than our maximal capacity. So this reserve capacity is a very important number. And we know that by increasing oxidative stress, we can increase, um, I'm sorry, we can decrease reserve capacity until it goes below zero and causes um, harm to the cell. So, um, and slide um, 42 is, uh, shows how we set up our experiment. We use something called DMNQ, which is an agent which increases oxidative stress in the cell. Um, and, um, and here we show um, what happens to glutathione as we increase um, DMNQ. We can see that the good glutathione, GSH, goes down. The bad glutathione, GSSG, goes up. And the ratio of the good to the bad goes down. So um, we know that as we add this chemical DMNQ, um, we know that glutathione is being depleted because we're um, producing more reactive um, oxygen species. And so this is a way of actually stressing the cells. So we can think of this as we look at the next slides as um, the higher the DMNQ, the higher we're stressing the cells with reactive oxygen species. So um, we uh, published a paper um, just this year where we did this interesting experiment and we showed that oxidative stress can induce mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and, and I'll talk about that a little bit. And what we used were things called 
lymphoblastoid cell lines. Um, and lymphoblastoid cell lines are cell lines that are derived from um, humans and then are immortalized so we can use them over and over again in our experiments. So this is really our first step to looking at cells derived from individuals with autism and seeing how their mitochondria work. The next slide, slide 44, just is a list of um, really the cells that we used. You can see that we age matched them very closely in this experiment um, so that um, there was you know, uh, criticism regarding, you know, um, using uh, different age cells like adult cells, which most of the studies have used in the past. So uh, slide 45 shows our initial results. And what we did is as we increased the DMNQ, we measured these different um, measures of mitochondrial function with our um, um, our um, seahorse. And what we showed and what was interesting to us is that um, in general um, the uh, autistic cell lines seem to have higher mitochondrial function than uh, the um, uh, than the control cell lines that is their APT, ATP sorry ATP uh, linked uh, respiration or how much ATP they were making at baseline um, was higher um, the uh, proton leak, um, which is uh, this regulation of oxidative stress, was a little bit higher to begin with, but as we started to stress the cell, it actually became much higher than the control cell lines. Um, interestingly, when we looked at the maximal ability of the mitochondria to work, it seemed that baseline, the, uh, the autistic cell lines actually showed a higher maximal respiratory capacity which then dropped down lower, um, much faster than the control cell lines. When we looked at the reserve capacity, we found that at baseline, without any oxidative stress, uh, um, the autistic cell lines had an increased reserve capacity. Um, but then as we stressed the cells, this reserve capacity fell um, um, abruptly and actually went below the... Um, the control cell line. So there was a greater decrease in the reserve capacity or the cells seem more sensitive to oxidative stress. So uh, one thing we were very interested in is to ask, well, is this all the um, cells, all the autistic cells, or was there a subset of cells, that is, was there some type of subgroup that, um, that seemed to um, show this uh, characteristic and um, and um, was there a subgroup that was more normal? So what we did, we can see on, on uh, slide 46, we looked at um, the change in reserve capacity uh, versus their baseline reserve capacity. And we found out that there did seem to be two different groups. There seems to be a, um, a group that, um, uh, that um, uh, that had more our normal baseline reserve capacity, and we uh, found another group that seemed to have more abnormal um, reserve capacity. And when we looked at them separately, which we can see in slide 47, slide 47, the top row, uh, shows the, um, uh, the comparison between the um, autistic cell lines that seem to have more normal reserve capacity 
Um, and we can see that as we stress them, that for the most part, they're almost indistinguishable from the um, control cell lines. But then when we look at the autistic cell lines, which is that middle row, we see that they're very, very deviant from controls, that, um, that at baseline um, they have um, uh, very large differences in, um, in, um, in their mitochondrial function. And when we look at reserve capacity, we see it's very, very dramatic that uh, the autistic cell lines um, that uh, start out with a very high reserve capacity at baseline, as soon as you stress them, their reserve capacity falls very, very quickly um, down below the control cell line. And this really suggests that they're very, very sensitive to um, to oxidative stress, suggesting that just a little bit of oxidative stress, which could be controlled by a, um, um, a normal cell, will disproportionately really hurt um, cells from certain individuals with mitochondrial disorder. Um, in the, uh, the next slide on 48, we also looked at um, measures of glycolysis, which is another way of making energy. And suffice to say, what we found is that uh, glycolysis was also um, very abnormal in the um, uh, the autistic cell lines that had the abnormal reserve capacity, suggesting that these cells were at baseline very much under stress and using every um, metabolic pathway they had really to um, control. Um, oxidative stress um, or, um, or to work. Um, and um, so um, uh, slide we have 49 here is a diagram of the electron transport chain and the five complexes. And, and um, the way that they work, I didn't go over this earlier, but the way the electron transport chain works is it takes these um, protons or hydrogen molecules, these H's, and it pumps them across the membrane. So you can see that there's more H's on top. It, it, it um, pumps these uh, hydrogen molecules, these protons, um, to one side of the membrane. So there's more on one side. And that creates an imbalance. And whenever there's an imbalance in any type of system, the system wants to balance itself. And you can think of it almost like a waterfall, like pumping water up a hill, and it wants to come down. And um, so the first four complexes pump these um, um, hydrogen um, ions or protons to one side of the membrane. And then um, the, uh, the mitochondria uses that, um, that imbalance um, to synthesize um, ATP, this energy molecule, at the last complex in the row, that is uh, complex five. One of the things um, that um, uh, uh, that can happen is you can have too much oxidative stress at this inner membrane, and to control that, you um, uh, can use something called proton leak, which I showed you is increased in some of these cells um, from children with autism. Um, and this proton leak is kind of like a release valve and lets, uh, lets, this, uh, lets these, these protons come back through the, the membrane um, 
uh, and kind of relieves that pressure. Um, and what we saw in these uh, abnormal uh, cells um, derived from children with uh, autism is that they, uh, is they have an increase in proton leak. Um, and, uh, and so we wanted to ask why. And we know that one of the ways that proton leak is controlled is a specific proton, uh, sorry, specific protein called uh, UCP2. So we were able to um, manipulate UCP2 um, to see if that was the um, uh, the um, abnormality. And um, suffice to say, you can look at slide 50. In slide 50, what we did is we pre-treated the cells with a certain chemical that inhibits UCP2. And uh, what we showed was that, uh, that the control cell lines responded to this much differently than the autistic cell lines, suggesting that there was something different about UCP2. So what we did is we actually measured the amount of UCP2. And I'm going to skip the next slide and go to slide 52. In slide 52, it shows you um, how much UCP2 there was. And what we found is that in these abnormal autistic cell lines, um, that UCP2, this uh, protein that's very important for regulating oxidative stress, was completely upregulated. And there was much more in um, these uh, cell lines from those uh, children with autism that had abnormal mitochondrial function compared to ones that had more normal mitochondrial function, um, suggesting that this was one piece of the puzzle. Um, we looked at other uh, parameters, too, in, in, in uh, slide 53. We looked at differences in, um, in numbers of uh, uh, mitochondrial DNA copies which would tell us whether this was because the, the mitochondria themselves were, were upregulated and, they were made, and sometimes you can make more mitochondria, um, or whether some of the key genes were abnormal. And we found out that actually the relative number of genes and, and, um, uh, was absolutely the same between these, uh, these two groups of autistic cell lines, those that were acting abnormally and those that were acting normally. Um, in the next slide, in 54, um, we, uh, we showed that um, for the most part, they also had very similar um, redox profiles as far as the way that glutathione was working. Um, although the, these abnormal um, uh, cells derived from children with, with, with autism who had abnormal mitochondrial function, um, seem to have higher levels of reactive oxygen species inside the cell, suggesting, um, again, that even at baseline, they were predisposed um, to, for some reason, to have very poor um, regulation of um, redox metabolism. And um, so um, slide 55 um, shows um, an experiment we did where we actually derived um, immune cells similar to the, the lymphoblastoid cell lines, but now we took fresh cells from children with autism. And so uh, this is kind of important because uh, the previous experiments really show that these cell lines um, um, were acting abnormally in a subset of children with autism. 
But somebody could argue that, well, maybe so there was something wrong with the cell lines, and and really it doesn't have to do with, you don't really see it in, in children if you look at, um, at the way their bodies are working. Um, uh, and so what we did is we derived um, immune cells from children with autism, and we did the same experiments. And in slide um, 56, this is a summary of the experiments. And what we found is that when we looked at these uh, different measures of uh, mitochondrial function, that indeed um, that uh, uh, when we looked at how they um, reacted to um, DMNQ and increases in, in oxidative stress, that, um, that the two different cell lines did react very differently. And we could actually pick out a subset um, of um, children who seem to respond, whose mitochondria seem to respond very poorly to oxidative stress. And this appeared to be about a third of the children that we tested. Um, and that corresponds to a, about a third of the cells that we found in the, uh, the cell lines we were testing that also um, seem to um, be abnormal. So uh, the numbers seem to, uh, to be similar. Um, but of course, the, the million-dollar question is, well, does it really mean anything? And does it matter to the health of the child? And so what we did is we used something called the Vineland Adaptive Behavior Scale to look at the development. And that's um, down in the, um, the bottom um, right corner of this diagram on uh, slide 56. And what we uh, found is that when we looked at the differences in their development, that the children who had mitochondrial um, function that was very sensitive to oxidative stress um, had about a 10-point lower um, uh, um, score on average on the Vineland Adaptive Developmental Scale, uh, suggesting that they were developing poorer than the ones that, uh, that did not have this mitochondrial um, dysfunction. Um, slide 57 uh, shows uh, the, the differences in, in glutathione, and we actually found that um, the measures of oxidative stress by looking at glutathione were um, uh, different, and they were worse in these children that seemed to have mitochondrial uh, dysfunction. And so slide 58 is our summary uh, slide. And so um, um, and in this slide, it's a nice summary to, to go over the uh, different um, um, ways that uh, the different groups that we see. We believe that, um, that children with autism are under chronic oxidative stress. And when an additional oxidative stress uh, um, is uh, imposed on them, um, they may have a normal response, um, and uh, they uh, they um, uh, they may react in a normal way. However, there's another um, group that has a very maladaptive response, whereas a mild um, uh, acute oxidative insult will cause their cells to um, really um, uh, become highly dysfunctional um, and um, and and uh, cause damage to those cells, um, and this will manifest as mitochondrial dysfunction. So, 
um, we really think there's, there's a subgroup of children, probably about a third, that, uh, that have mitochondria who are very, very sensitive um, to um, acute insults. So it's um, one of these uh, situations where you have a uh, predisposing condition somehow where um, the child set up um, to react poorly to mild oxidative insults um, and then some type of mild oxidative insult comes, um, they come across it and it causes their cells to fall apart. And this can be something like a, a viral illness um, or can be some type of environmental exposure. Um, and so what we're trying to do is, is of course, uh, find out how we can identify these children and how we can treat them. And so um, in the next slide, uh, 59, is the, the title to an, another paper we just published this year where we also looked at these cell lines and we looked at a way that we could treat them. Um, and so 60 is just, slide 60 is just a, a list of, uh, of the cell lines that we used. Um, and 61 um, just shows that these cell lines, again, there's, there's uh, two types, um, one that seems to be more normal and one that seems to be more abnormal um, in its response to oxidative stress. But the important slide is slide 62. And slide 62, what we show is that these um, uh, cells uh, cell lines that um, have the more abnormal um, response to oxidative stress and are more sensitive to oxidative stress, when we pre-treat them with N-acetylcysteine, which is a precursor to glutathione, um, we can normalize their reserve capacity um, uh, so that their reserve capacity doesn't dip down below normal when they're stressed. However, um, what we found is the cells tend to do this by, again, working harder. Their ATP-linked um, respiration and their proton um, leak is actually um, higher, but so is their maximal respiratory capacity. So, in a sense, this, this treatment isn't a cure, but it's a way of protecting the cells, um, and the cells are compensating in a way. So it's, it's one way that may help um, um, this uh, subset of um, children with autism with this type of mitochondrial functions may help protect them. Uh, on the next slide, 63, um, is simply showing that when we add the N-acetylcysteine, we normalize glutathione and improve um, glutathione in these cells. So um, 64 is my summary slide. So for uh, in a summary, what we've really shown here is that both these lymphoblastoid cell lines, LCLs, and the, um, the peripheral uh, mononuclear um, cells that were derived fresh from children with autism, both demonstrate this um, type of mitochondrial function where the mitochondrium is very sensitive to um, small changes in oxidative stress and can make the, the cell um, fall apart. There seems to be a subgroup of children with autism that may be about a third of children with autism. Um, and it appears to, to be that these children may have poorer development and they may be relatively um, worse affected. And that N-acetylcysteine at least seems to be one agent that may help normalize mitochondrial function. So, um, 
um, how do we put this all together? This is slide 65. And slide 66 is, is kind of a complicated diagram where we try and put things together. And, uh, and there's a diagram that shows how things are connected. That is, mitochondrial dysfunction is related to redox regulation abnormalities. Um, and um, mitochondrial dysfunction can cause um, immune dysfunction and inflammation which um, um, immune dysfunction can increase oxidative stress, which can make mitochondrial dysfunction worse. So you have a, a vicious spiral. And all of these factors can be in, in influenced by the environment and the uh, genetic code. So they are all at that interface between environmental um, exposures and genetics. So they're perfectly, perfectly placed um, um, at, uh, at what we know as the causes of uh, of autism. And so, um, so with that, I'll end um, what I'm talking about uh, there in my talk about acquired mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, the following slides, if you're interested, are, are studies that are in our center. Um, if you're here, um, um, we have several studies, including one that I know a couple people said they were um, there are patients that have been involved um, where we're looking at uh, subgroups of children with mitochondrial disease and dysfunction and finding out how to identify them. Um, uh, we have a study, one of our studies that's very important right now is a study on folinic acid, which is a special form of folate that seems to help with uh, cerebral folate deficiency. And we've seen really some amazing um, um, results from that study. Um, and then uh, on slide 70, just going to mention the, the fact that we have a, a conference where we're looking at yet another area of autism, that is the microbiome and how it influences autism. We're having a, a conference with some pretty prominent speakers in June, if anybody is interested there. Um, slide 71 is just uh, the list of all the people that have contributed and, and our funding, which we cannot do this work without our funding and uh, without funding and without the wonderful people. And the last slide is just a, um, I, uh, a slide of our lab um, locally and all the people that have done this wonderful work. So um, with that, um, let me know if you have any questions. Okay, that's, Dr. Fry, let me thank you first for that all of that wonderful information. Um, this is a great resource. And your work for children with mitochondrial dysfunction and with autism um, is giving us as families a lot of hope, you know, um, particularly focusing on actual things that can help these families as well as understanding the causes. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for, for listening. I know it's a lot of information. And, um, and I'm sorry it's so technical, um, um, but uh, trying to get a lot of the information out there. So hopefully it will jog some minds and people will start putting the connections together. Um, well, I uh, I do have, um, I can unmute the lines and we can take a few questions if you have time. We can do a couple. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, Okay, so we'll do a few questions, um, and I will remind everyone that if you could use star six to mute.
your line and you're not breaking, that will be really helpful so we can preserve the call quality. Yeah. Okay, so um, when you ask your question, I will remind you that the call is being recorded. So uh, keep your questions general and and as appropriate for our group as you can. Okay, who would like to ask the first question? Cool. Okay. Sorry, I'm getting some background, but if anyone would like to ask a question, just introduce yourself. Yes, go ahead. Yes, this is Laura Fox. And I'm going to have to do with the cost data stress. Desolation. Discovered in the I saw that and I was wondering, you know, what do diet wise to try to influence the We've great luck in 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 fifteen now, and so you know, and I'm always looking for what continue to improve his health care. So I guess my question is, what, what kind of things are we facing to improve methylation and I'm sorry, you're cutting out. Yes, sir. Um, Laura, you're breaking up a little bit, and there's also, let me remind anyone who's listening, please use the dark uh, we're just getting so much background from people talking that we can't hear. So please use star six or otherwise we'll have to focus now on what you're doing. So, uh, Dr. Fryler was breaking up a little bit. Did you get the gist of the question? I think it was about improving methylation. Um, yeah, I think. Yeah. So, improving methylation is a really good, um, it's a really good question. Um, and so one of the first things that, uh, um, I do when I find out um, individuals have mitochondrial dysfunction um, or mitochondrial disease is I, um, uh, is I first, uh, one of the first things is to address um, the uh, glutathione and methylation pathways. Um, and what we've had a lot of luck with is um, using a combination of B12, linic acid, and N-acetylcysteine injected every three days subcutaneously. Um, and kids respond really, really well to it. Um, um, and um, it's uh, the, the three of them together um, attack that methylation pathway. That is, you know, um, folinic acid gets into the uh, folate cycle um, uh, readily, um, and it works with B12 um, to reinforce the, the, uh, the methylation cycle. Um, and what we found is that if you just use B12 together with folinic acid, you know, um, Jill James um, showed in, in um, her study, in, I think it was 2009, that, um, that you can improve glutathione by just um, B12 and, uh, and folinic acid. Um, and we showed um, um, or, um, about six months ago, we published a paper showing that also the amount that you improve glutathione is... Uh, the amount you see improvements in development in, in these kiddos. Um, but, um, but what she also showed um, in the paper when looking at um, the, um, 
looking at metabolic um, uh, biomarkers is that uh, even though you improve glutathione, it was really hard to improve methylation. And we find that too. Uh, so what we do is we add N-acetylcysteine, and what that does is it gives a precursor to um, glutathione. So more glutathione is made, because what we feel is if you just give B12 and folinic acid, you're actually draining the methylation cycle as a precursor to glutathione. So by giving N-acetylcysteine, that kind of um, stops that drain on the methylation cycle. Um, uh, we, we don't have proof that that yet, we're looking into it, but we don't have proof yet that that will normalize methylation. But that's the approach that um, we take as a first step, you know, although there's a number of different steps that you can use. Of course, using, um, uh, you know, um, using diets that, uh, that are probably low in um, certain um, uh, um, um, uh, in things that can increase oxidative stress, um, um, like preservatives and such, some, at least some of them, um, can also help um, with that. Did that answer your question? Oh, and you know what, Dr. Pry, I muted everyone, so I apologize for your <laughs> because we have so much background noise. Yeah. I will, uh, I will take right now. Sarah, we, you are on mute, and now we can hear you, sir, but say your comment again. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I said that Dr. Pry asked if that answered my question, and it does, and it uh, gives me ten more questions, but uh, I'll save those for my appointment. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, another question from someone who's on the Dr. Pry? Yes. I, I might have gotten lost in the biochemistry. Yes. Um, in fact, I'm sure I did, but hopefully this isn't too confused. Um, you you had talked about um, that that oxi that, that oxidants um, were were a matter of balance. Yes. And yes. That, that we want to get a homo homeostasis. So um, if I if 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 um, too much of of a prooxidant state. Is a, might be might might contribute to some neurodevelopmental issues, autoimmunity, those sorts of things. Um, is I was just trying to understand that along with um, we think of of mitochondrial disease sometimes as being associated with a failure to thrive, a short stature kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. um, um, so in that and and I think you might have said that that the that when you go to um, a, uh, you don't have enough of the prooxidant, then you might have decreased proliferative response. So I was kind of trying to see how is it a contradiction that you might have a failure to thrive and a and and markers of mitochondrial dysfunction and as well as sort of the neurodevelopmental autoimmunity kind of thing looking going on. I'm probably just misunderstood the biochemistry. No, and I, I, a simpler question um, is just that. If there's some things that sort of show up in early childhood and then seemingly disappear, and like a like a milk protein allergy, which I know is different from, is not the same thing as having an antibody to the full the, the full age. I, I, I understand that, but you know, the pediatrician sort of said, oh, you know, in most children it's just gone after age two, or or um. um my child had a had an expressive language delay where there were only a few words at age three, and then. He now he really reads with comp with a lot of comprehension. He's quite a bit older, which is great. And he doesn't have any 
obvious um, social language problems. He's not the most um, socially flawed kid in the world, but, you know, we're, we're very lucky, but he has ADHD, so it was kind of like, oh, that expressive language delay is completely gone. And then a couple of years later, he's diagnosed with ADHD, so maybe this is just two strange questions, but I wondered if some of these underlying things that you see in some kids, not to say that that's what's happening in our family. We've been told we have some of these mitochondrial markers by Dr. Kelly years ago, but, you know, I really mm -hmm. feel like I don't know. Um, but can that, can that sometimes be connected to things that just seem to disappear and then you turn up with another another issue years later? Yeah, um, so so you have a lot of many good questions. So um, so first of all, yeah, no, that, that that was a very good catch you had there of, of, of talking about um, kind of oxidative stress and growth and proliferation and, and such things like that. But you know, the problem is the body is very complicated, um, and so nothing's ever simple. And um, no um, growth, um, I mean, no problems with growth are, are very characteristic of, of mitochondrial disorders. Um, and so in order for your body to grow, it needs energy. Um, and if your mitochondria isn't functioning, it's, uh, it, it's not going to give your body um, the energy that it needs to grow. But uh, not only that, the mitochondria also, if you remember I said, you know, it's, it's, it's primarily the powerhouse of the, the cell, but it has a lot of other functions too. And this is what makes it very confusing is that... Um, it, it ends up the, the mitochondria is also important for um, making uh, amino acids and building blocks um, used for your body to grow. Um, and if it's um, um, if it's busy actually making energy because it's not working very well um, early on, it won't make those building blocks and can't help the cells grow. Um, in addition, there's another um, whole aspect on top of that and that is epigenetics, which I didn't really go into. And what happens is um, that um, if the cell is under stress, um, it goes into more of a hibernating state or a, a conservation state. And this is um, kind of the idea that uh, Bob Navarro has, uh, has talked about, where, um, uh, where um, cells under stress um, don't want to grow and they, they, they don't want to communicate with other cells, they, they don't want to reproduce themselves because they, they go into a protective mode. And so, and one of the signals for that is, uh, is the mitochondria not working correctly. Um, so, um, so there's many reasons why cells may not grow and the body may not grow when the mitochondria isn't working very well. And, not on, and, 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 uh, and in general, it's, it's very... Um, it's very complicated. So, so, uh, um, uh, so the, my comment about oxidative stress is kind of an aside, and it's probably one of the, the least things we have to um, worry about. Um, now, the idea of development is really, really important. And again, this goes back into the states and the way that the body grows. And, and this is like one of the reasons why we don't know. Um, we, we can't diagnose uh, children with, uh, with autism very early on at this point because, you know, this is one of these problems with development is that some, uh, some developmental characteristics um, that, are, that are used to diagnose autism are actually normal very early on in infancy. So that's why you can't apply the criteria for autism to infants. 
um, because some of those behaviors are, are normal very early on, and what happens is developmentally you lose those. Um, and, but it's the same thing with physiological systems. Um, the brain, the way the brain develops, it, uh, it develops in different ways. It's different neurotransmitter systems are turned on and off. Um, and many times um, there's variations in development and, um, and things um, resolve by themselves. And one of the problems we have is that we can't diagnose a lot of diseases early because we don't have the right markers. The markers are inconsistent. They may be abnormal and they may be normal um, very early on. We don't know what's eventually going to happen because we don't have the right ways of telling um, what's going to eventually happen. And that's why it's important that we find new markers that, that will tell us what's going on, will tell us when the body is not um, developing um, normally. In mitochondrial disease also, um, uh, you have another point I think there about, um, you know, uh, I think you said your son eventually developed ADHD or, um, and um, um, in, in that, um, in that um, uh, a lot of times we think that, um, at least with developmental disorders, um, um, a lot of times people describe things as going away, you know, let's say autism resolving, but what we find when we really study children with neurodevelopmental disorders, if they have true neurodevelopmental disorders, um, what happens is um, their body and their brain compensates for it usually, and it doesn't resolve completely. Um, and the system is always in a state of compensation, um, and so um, then, uh, so what typically happens is those individuals are um, more um, sensitive to uh, certain types of stressors, whether they be, you know, physiological stressors on the body, such as you know, immune uh, problems, such as getting sick, or whether they be psychological stressors, you know, from uh, stress um, um, in their interactions. So um, development is very complicated, and, and that's why we still don't understand it. So hopefully that answers some of your questions. Thank you, Dr. Fry. And I did put the participants on mute again because of that background noise. Sure. Um, I have a question that came in over email about um, environmental stressors. If you could comment on any examples that you could provide of environmental oxidative stressors. Sure. Most um, it ends up that uh, that most um, when we think of environmental toxicants, um, uh, whether they be pesticides, food additives, um, uh, solvents, um, heavy metals, um, etc., um, many of the ways that they work is through increasing oxidative stress. Um, also, um, uh, also infectious agents. Uh, harm our body through oxidative stress. That is, they um, they ramp up the immune system, and the immune system uses actually oxidative stress to fight um, uh, foreign organisms and try and kill them. But in in the uh, same way, it also can harm our body. So there's many different um, uh, um, um, many different examples um, of environmental stressors that can harm us. Um, for more toxic exposures, I'd, I'd refer you to um, a latest review that um, Dr. Rosenwell and I um, just finished and published in Translational 
um, psychiatry that is open access, free online, which you can review. And we, I think we did a pretty good job of going over all the literature that talks about um, police toxicants and, and their relation to autism. Fantastic. Um, so it's close to 2 o'clock, so Dr. Fry, um, I'm going to wrap us up and uh, encourage folks if they have additional questions to um, post those questions either on our Facebook page or when the page where you found the teleconference information for today has a ability for you to post comments. You can post questions there and then I can collaborate with you to put the answers there and then that way everyone can see them benefit. Sure. Well, but um, this is so informative and, and your commitment to this work and to patients really shines through in your presentation. So again, on behalf of the community, thank you. And yeah. thank you for your time and sharing all of this information with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for listening. Okay, great. Thank you, everyone. Have a, a great rest of the month, and uh, we'll see you again in June for our next speaker. Uh, and remind everyone also that there is a support group every Friday using the same teleconference number that you use today. Fridays at the same time, you can um, anticipate being able to jump in on the support group as well any, on any Friday. So, Dr. Fry, again, thank you so much, and everyone, thank you for joining. Have thank a great you. day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.